none of the children were like adoptable per se. They were just kind of being cared for and getting education. And um, that was the big start of my journey personally of not understanding this concept that I was told my whole life and um, just really felt like it was really unjust, unjust um, of if children have families, like why are they not with their families? Um, and why am I sitting here talking to them and hearing about this pain and heartache that they're not with their families, but their siblings are. Um, and so that was kind of my, my start. You're listening to I Used to Know, But Now I Think, a show about leaders, thinkers, visionaries, and the stories that shaped how they understand the world. I'm Jake Thayer, and on the show today, how Jonathan and Katrina Brown changed the way they think about children experiencing vulnerabilities after visiting an orphanage in South America. Today, we're joined by our friends, Jonathan and Katrina Brown. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about yourselves. All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we've been married for about four and a half years. We are originally from San Diego, California. Woo-woo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've, we met there um, when we were, Katrina was in high school and I was in my first year of college. It's a little scandalous. Because we were apart by eight months. Um, So we met there, um, and then we've gradually moved north. So we ended up in Santa Barbara for a season for school, and then we made our way up to Seattle, where we still are now. Nice. Did you guys move here for work for you? I did. I moved up about eight months before she did, and then we were long distance. And then we got married. Yeah. And then I moved. I flew from our honeymoon to Washington. Um, yeah, <laughs> so it was, was all it? at once. A lot of change at once. Uh, so like your wedding was like the last time you saw your friends. Yeah, I like said bye to our family <laughs> wow. at our reception. Well, we had an after party, but I said bye to everybody then. And it was like, okay, Popped well, after our honeymoon, like we're flying a plane to wow. Seattle. Wow. That's a lot of change. It was actually easier having all the change mm-hmm. at once <laughs> than like Agreed. spread out mm-hmm. of, okay, we moved. Okay, we got married. Okay, we got a new job. It was just like, bam, all of it at once. And it's yeah. so exciting. I mean, you're getting married, so it's like wrapped up in an exciting adventure anyways. Totally. Like you're newlyweds and you're in your new home together. And yeah, it was a, it was really good. It was a positive, big mm-hmm. change. Was it hard? Um, like, tra- you know, like transitioning into being a married couple, which has its own. I mean, it's I think it's for the most part really fun, but there's it's it's not like you don't you run into issues that you didn't expect or didn't think about and then you now don't have your old support system was that challenging or um I think our first year was not um I think because there was like a lot of excitement that we had just moved to a new state and we were exploring every weekend and so it was kind of this really like adventurous first year and then I think after that is when it was like, okay, we're ready to like be in community. And that's when it started getting hard of making adults as making friends as an adult is really awkward. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a long process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, we dated for so long that we dated for six years. And so we hit a lot of those 
issues in like year two, three that a lot of people are hitting right when they get married. Um, so, so we had some, our hard season was those years. And yeah. We had to work was, through a lot. It was a lot easier once we got married actually. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's, that's cool. So something you guys care about, uh, is child welfare. Um, mm-hmm. and how did you guys realize that was something you cared about or like, how did you get to that conclusion? Um, do you want me to go? You can start. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know how far back to go, but I really loved and gravitated towards children and caring for children. And I think growing up in the church, um, you hear a lot of conversations around caring for the orphans and caring for the widows. And it's just this really common conversation. Um, and so I like went on several missions trips to one to Mexico and one to Nicaragua where I was at um, orphanages and playing with the kids. Um, and so I think that that's kind of where that started coming from is getting those experiences. You can take it from there. There's yeah, we both had those experiences growing up. Um, it was just a normal thing of like, oh, we're going to serve at an orphanage. Um, and like this concept, like we're beneficial to these children by being there. Um, I think is very common. And so I think when we, where it really started to, we started to question that was when Katrina was living in Nicaragua for a bit. Um, Nicaragua. Gosh. (laughs) Uh, I'm saying it, you know. White guy. Like a white guy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So um, Katrina was in Nicaragua and um, was at an orphanage and kind of through conversation with those children, you can expand in a sec, but um, came to realize that most of them actually had families. Yeah, um, I was told before I left to make a point to spend time with the older kids because those were the kids that usually didn't get attention when um, missions teams came in. Mm. And so I started um, talking to them and things started coming out of them, like talking about their families. And I was really confused. I was like, I don't understand Mm -hmm. because my idea of an orphanage is that children are orphans, meaning they don't have families. Um, and so that led me to asking and talking to the the pastor who was kind of overseeing everything. And he was basically explaining that all those children, majority of them um, had families and they were just caring for the children um, because the families could not afford to care for them. And so none of the children were like adoptable per se. They were just kind of being cared for and getting education. And um, that was the big start of my journey personally of not understanding this concept that I was told my whole life and um, just really felt like it was really unjust, unjust mm-hmm. um, of if children have families, like why are they not with their families? Um, and why am I sitting here talking to them and hearing about this pain and heartache that they're not with their families, but their siblings are. Um, and so that was kind of my, my start. Mm-hmm. How, how old were you when, when you mm-hmm. went there? I think it was 2013, maybe. Yeah, so. 21? Yeah, I was 21. Baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I was 21, and um, I think it's one of those things where you go and you have an idea of what you're going to be doing, mm-hmm. and then your world kind of gets rocked. And um, as I was getting a growing awareness around this situation and these um, these kids and their families, I um, at one point went up this river called Rio Coco and it borders Honduras and Nicaragua. Um, and it's like an eight hour boat ride that you're riding up this river. And we got to this um, town and 
for this village. And that was like my big moment because the pastor had mentioned that a lot of the kids in the orphanages, um, those were their families. Mm. And so it was crazy to see like the full circle of these families that are a lot of them living in poverty, um, but like seeing both sides of the picture um, and that they had a lot of love and to offer and a lot of care. Um, Mm. But that poverty was a big issue around this. Um, And then at the same time, when we got back to where we were, um, there was an admissions team that came in um, and they were there for the kids also of playing with them. And that was when my awareness around missions and orphanages and child welfare started coming together, realizing their idea of who these kids are um, was my idea just weeks prior. And so it was like a big moment to see that. That's cool that you got to see both mm-hmm. sides. I could see, uh, you know, you hear, I could see myself if I were in your situation, hearing their story about how they have families and then feeling like, wow, like their families must have abandoned them or not loved them or something. Mm-hmm. And then to go and visit them mm. and find out they're not, that's not the case, you know, right. that it's an economics problem, not a, uh, not like a lack of love or something right. that must have been really, I don't know, hard to reconcile it with, I guess, hard to understand because it's so far away from anything we would experience here. Yeah. Um, right. And in Western culture, I think we tend to associate orphanage with adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's easy to make that leap that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So when you said like you started to understand um, kind of like the scope of like missions, do you mean like short term missions and mm-hmm. like the effects on the kids and, you know, coming in without that knowledge, yeah. potentially like the damage that could yes. be done? Yeah, um, so I, I'm just gonna get on my soapbox for a second. Here it comes. <laughs> she loves Please this stuff. Please do. <laughs> um, so I, um, in undergrad, studied child development, and a huge part of what we talked about was attachment. And it's just kind of cool how like God intertwined all these different stories and areas of um, understanding something. Because um, in school, we talked a lot about attachment, and with primary caregivers, that mm-hmm. it's like this absolute thing that children need in order to succeed in life. Um, And so short-term missions to orphanages with children, um, basically children need attachment with a primary caregiver, um, whatever that looks like, somebody that's consistent um, and somebody that um, shows and models what it means to be um, secure and loved Mm -hmm. and cared for and for me, what I realized when I was there was that all these children, every time, continually were running to anybody new that was there. Um, so they were like running up to us and they were sitting on our lap and like hugging us. And um, the same thing with the missions team that came in. And that I later realized, because I was still in school, was a sign of and can be a sign of broken attachment of like a typical child usually um, has stranger danger of they're not going to want to come embrace you because they have this instinctual understanding of you're not my primary caregiver. That's not where my attachment is. And um, and so for short-term missions to orphanages, I mourn over it often that I was part of that cycle of um, breaking attachment for these children, of um, people coming in and out continually throughout their whole lives at this orphanage and that are trying to sit there and love them. 
Um, but then they leave. And that's something that I had a conversation with one of the girls particularly, and I can still remember her name and her face. And she had a photo album of somebody had that had come back um, every year to see her. And I asked her how she felt about it, and I remember her saying that she was really um, sad when she left and that she was really like heartbroken that this person would leave and that she felt really lonely mm. um, and that this is a cycle that she continually lives through, right? Like this person keeps coming every year. So that's my, mm. yeah. And what's, um, you know, like it sounds, uh, of course, like really sad that somebody would uh, be in that situation where they uh, are feeling constantly attached and then having that attachment broken. Mm-hmm. But uh, as a child that grows up in that system, what happens to somebody who's suffering from, uh, like broken attachment as they go into adulthood, what does that do? So I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an expert by any means. <laughs> I can only tell you what I know and please look up more and you can, it can be wrong. That's, um, go ahead. No, go for it. Um, so the big signs is that babies basically that children are not able to have secure attachments in adulthood. Um, so you would see a lot of, unhealthy adult relationships of um, not knowing how to engage in adult relationships or mm-hmm. um, never having been known, never fully being understood um, and not investing in relationships, not knowing how to have healthy relationships, um, being okay with relationships that cause pain over and over because that's what was taught. Mm-hmm. So kind of a lot of those kinds of things. Mm. Yeah. And then I could see that causing um those kind of destructive behaviors having um, repercussions that would result in them having children that Mm -hmm. uh, they can't take care of that could potentially end up in an orphanage or, you know, in a similar circumstance. And I could see that how that would recreate the cycle. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Now, Jonathan, you, did you guys both kind of like come into caring um, about this topic at the same time? Or Katrina, did you kind of, I mean, you went on the mission trip back in 2008 or um, how did, what was that like? Yeah. Um, so we, during that time, we uh, kind of alternated. I think in 2012, I went to the Philippines and then she went to Nicaragua. Nicar- I'm alternating between Spanish and English. <laughs> she went to Nicaragua. Um in 2013 and then I went to the Philippines again in 2014 and so we were kind of alternating and engaging in this um and out of each of those trips a lot of these questions surfaced Mm. that we talk about with each other yeah we'd come back feeling unsettled about something Mm -hmm. or something we experienced um and kind of push press into that Mm. so you were both on separate trips but having similar feelings and you guys were dating at the time we were dating yeah okay so yeah so Go ahead. Oh, good. So we, uh, I think what we realized the most is we went into these trips with expectations of what it would be like. Mm. Um, and then when we saw that it wasn't what we expected, um, that's what led to the questioning. So for example, the second time that I went to the Philippines, we went under the um, assumption that we were going to be kind of teaching computer classes and the way it was pitched to us was almost as if they were backwards in that sense. So they don't have computers. They don't know any of this stuff. And so someone needs to teach them. And we're like, oh, we'll do it. And, you know, we were a couple college kids. Like, we weren't qualified for that. But um, we went, and it t- totally turned out to be the wrong assumption. Like, they were 
completely capable. We kind of ended up not knowing what to do once we got there because what we had thought and planned on what didn't turn out to be the case. So we ended up painting a building um, <laughs> for like three weeks. Um, and then we're like, how, how did this go so wrong according to what we expected? Um, so experiences like that kind of caused us to question our assumptions about other parts of the world and the way that as an outsider coming in that we were understanding it so wrong. So, uh, so it sounds like your first steps in like learning more about this and caring about it, uh, kind of engaging with it was going to, uh, these different places and learning about it firsthand. Um, and then, uh, what, what kind of came after that? How did, was it reading books or was it, uh, I mean, I know Katrina later you went back to school, but kind of what was the timeline on that? Um, so I think after, over the course of those few years, um, we were both in school. And like I mentioned, I was in school studying child development. And I had a lot of options on what to write my research papers on. And so I started reading a lot about attachment and orphans um, and attachment with children in orphanages. And so that was kind of the start for me of like allowing myself to rabbit hole and find the academic research and the books and just learn more about this topic. Um, something that I wasn't, I didn't have any like expert experience in at all, but I just couldn't, was too curious not to know. Mm, right. Well, and that's you, good. Yeah. And if you back up even, that was for your master's, not your undergrad. And that so, was my undergrad. Oh, you researched that in your undergrad. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. I researched on Ukrainian orphanages. Oh, I do remember that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. cool. Yeah. And then I think we both read a book. It was called Orphan Justice. That was kind of the start of... By Johnny Carr? Johnny Carr. I think he used to be... He was something at Bethany Christian Services. If he ever listens to this, we butchered it. <laughs> <laughs> when you guys are famous. <laughs> um, but that book kind of got us... We both read it. Where were we? We were in Palm Springs with a, on a family vacation. And we were reading... Um, this book, and he started to bring up a lot of these similar questions that we resonated with, um, and that just made us push into it a bit more. Not exactly a light poolside read. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's where we were reading it. Yeah, you know, sitting at the poolside, having our that's yeah. cool. drink in the sun. I think there's something to be said about that. Of like, I think uh, it can part of our desire to be comfortable is to our desire to maintain ignorance about difficult things. And mm. you guys, you know, you could have picked up a, a mindless novel or whatever. So I think that's cool that you didn't uh, shy away from engaging in that. And you, what you said earlier about being too curious not to know, right. um, that's I, that's really powerful. I like that. <laughs> that could be a sign. That could be a sign. <laughs> so um, how, what was the in-between? So you decided to go back to school to get your master's degree. Um, what you're making a face. <laughs> I mourned over that. <laughs> Ooh, that was a tough decision for you. That was a very tough decision. Well, why? Um, so it was, I mean, over the course of, I mean, literally the beginning of a relationship in 2009, child welfare was always a conversation, um, from the very start around adoption. And then we started having all these experiences and then we get to being together for around 10 years. And it was still this conversation in our relationship of around child welfare and um, caring for children. And we were in so deep at this point of talking with people and 
being involved in various ministries and reading. And I remember um, telling Jonathan at one point, and I was crying, and I was like, I think I'm supposed to get my master's because I'm not equipped to be in this field, and I want to be in it. Like, it's been sustained for so long, um, and it's been a conversation in our, like, conversations for so long. But I feel like it was when I went on that missions trip and I didn't understand. I don't want to do that again. Mm. Like, I want to have the knowledge and understanding in order to be active and um, have a full picture in the field. So, yeah, that was a hard one. And wh- why was it hard for you to decide that? I mean, some people <laughs> want to go back to school. like Right. It, but it sounds like part of you wanted to and part of you did not want to. Yeah. When she finished her undergrad, she swore <laughs> she'd never go back to school. <laughs> it was an accomplishment. Yeah. So. I, I hated school. School was hard for me. I, like, have a lot of learning disabilities and – it was like sitting in the classroom and people like, you know, writing their papers and then sending it into the teacher by the end of the class. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wrote mine for a week and a half. Like mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, school was really hard. It was, it's very like emotional to feel like you're outpouring in an area that feels like it's one of your greatest weaknesses. Um, but yet somehow like amongst all that, every time I would write about papers um, that were on topics of vulnerable children, I was excited and I was writing and I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And so that was kind of an indicator that I was in the right direction is like when an area feels like a weakness, but you still feel sustained in it. Um, and that was really like, that was really good. And then, yeah, so I remember I was in undergrad and I was just looking at programs that were like, is anybody addressing child welfare in the international context is there further education around this and I found my master's program and I remember telling Jonathan like uh you know haha funny if I ever got my master's I'd get it at this school and this degree because they cover these topics and then sure enough like God led me there and I was kind of devastated like it was a pretty clear voice of God that I was supposed to do that um, but I was really devastated to think that I would have to be back in school and back in a place that felt like I really felt like I never measured up fully. Um, yeah, mm, That's really cool. Tell me about, so you said like you heard a clear voice. Um, what was that? What did that look like for you? And um, how did you not ignore that? Because sometimes when the voice, whatever that, however that manifests for you, isn't saying the things you want it to say, you can just kind of chalk it up to like the bad pizza you ate last Mm -hmm. night or, you know what I mean? So how did you, what did that, what did that look like to realize that was what you're supposed to do? Right. Do you want to share about how I found the school or where the school was? Oh yeah. There were a couple of things. So (laughs) I was living up here before, before we got married and before she moved up and she, she told me, she's like, Oh, part of that. Ha ha. If I ever did, I was like, Oh, that's right down the street from where I'm living. Um, <laughs> she's like, Oh, oh okay. So you were already living up here. I was, she was in California saying, yep. Oh, I found this school. And you're like, that's yep. just down the street. It was yep. like two miles from yeah. where he was. I was at. living in Kirkland and she didn't realize the school was in Kirkland. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Oh wow. shoot. <laughs> I was like, Oh, that's funny. Um, what a funny coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> a little foreshadowing there. Um, and then after we had gotten married, when, she already knew about this and we were talking about it. Um, there was one day we both came out of church, had nothing to do with this, but somehow we started talking about it. Um, and we both said at the same time, we feel like this is what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know where it came from. It just, it felt right. Um, 
Yeah. I think that for Jonathan and I, when there are signals of peace and yes. um, I don't, I don't function in peace typically. I function more on the anxious side. And so when I have this like underlining peace that's unexplainable, that's, that's my indicator. Um, and for it to come from Jonathan on the same day that I was feeling like God is telling me like I need to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of another confirmation of, of that. And then, yeah, I had been talking to the admissions people for like a year and a half. And then the lady one day was like, what, what why, why haven't you like fully applied yet? I'm like, I don't really know. She's like, do you think it's time? And I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so I like wrote my essay. Jonathan came home from work one day and I was like, I need you to edit this. I'm applying to grad school. And he was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> that's really sweet. Yeah. That's awesome. That's sweet. I feel like it's neat that you didn't question it or you were just like, let's go. <laughs> We'd been talking about it for a while. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's nice hearing a story like your guys' uh, you know, condensed nicely because it just feels um it feels good to know like you were here, you, you, you know, either you or God kind of led you towards this thing. Um, you, you learn more about it. You, you felt like you're called to, to dig deeper. Um, it all sounds so nice and packaged up, but when you're in it, uh, I just want to acknowledge the fact that this is over the time span of like 10 years, 10 years. or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I don't know. I know I, when I hear somebody's story, I can get discouraged because I'm like, you know, it, it, when you're in your story, the the clarity isn't there. The clarity comes when you look in the rearview mirror and you're like, oh, this this seems so mm-hmm. nice. And like, I, you know, I didn't want to go to school, but but it was the right thing to do. But when you're in it, when you're sitting there like, I, I hate, you know, like yeah. it's different. Yeah. So, yeah, I think one thing we learned in that process was because there were so many tears, there was so much confusion and what are we supposed to do? And we've been talking about this for a decade. What are we going to mm-hmm. do with it? And. Um, what we learned in the process was to just take one step and say yes to it, um, even if it's yes. a small step. Um, and those little small steps really added up over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we felt braver and braver with every step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so something a friend of ours likes to say is take a step before you feel ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we've been trying to do and trying to do with others. Mm-hmm. That's so good. It's so easy to get the uh, frozen in the fear of, you know, you see where you want to go or you see people who are already there and you think I could never be them or, you know, I don't have X, Y, Z, but just, but you do have the ability to take that next step. So that's so cool that you guys have done that and just consistently been like, all right, I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. Cause right. now I see where you guys are at. And I'm like, that's, you know, I want to be there. Um, so I think that's really cool. So Katrina, your thesis was titled how language affects our perception of orphans, how accurate language leads to informed action. So can we talk a little bit about, Okay. Um, and I know I call it your thesis, but I know Jonathan yeah. also was a very integral part of uh, writing and editing it. So oh, of course, both of you yes. feel free to. Um, Jonathan you know. knows it better than me at this point. PSA, he's my find editor. it online. This thing's gold. <laughs> <laughs> It is. It no. is. Put it in the show notes or something. <laughs> she did a great job on this. Oh, that's all thanks to you. No, <laughs> you guys are both so sweet. <laughs> so yeah, but tell tell me about what is the um, what is lang- how does language affect our perception of the people in this um, vulnerable group? I think where we kind of, if I can give a little intro to it, um, we so we were we still are um, at at our church on kind of the leadership team for the, what we originally called the orphan care ministry. Um, and we called it that because that's what 
most churches call that. Um, and we didn't really have a better name for that. Um, but what we were really doing was around foster care um, and another thing called safe families that we'll probably get to mm-hmm. um, because we care about it. Um, <laughs> and so those were the things we were doing. And so we were going with this orphan care name for a long time because it's just kind of what the church does is like you mentioned the verse about widows and orphans. And co- so that's kind of the natural next step. Um, and so we had been doing that for a while and then we realized we're not doing anything with orphans and we're probably giving more of a misconception around what we're doing by calling it that. Um, and that, so that's kind of where the idea of how does language affect our perception, which affects our action come from. Right. And I mean, both of our experiences in developing countries where we were with children in orphanages, um, that was another area of just thinking that you are interacting with orphans and realizing that they are not orphans by the traditional term. Um, and so a lot of different past experiences and kind of going back to full circle of our, like my start experience in Nicaragua, I really felt like I need to address something that has been so bothersome to me because it was, I just had so many perceptions from it and it totally did affect how I interacted with it. And I think, and I believe the church can do better Um, and I think that we are a place that can offer community, um, to families in isolation, to families in crisis, to children experiencing vulnerabilities. Um, and I want to see us doing that well. That's cool. So what do you think the first step is in getting, I mean, using better language? Um, what is... You know, how does somebody like myself, a kind of lay person who, you know, I, I'm not uh, I'm not going to commit to going getting my master's degree on this, but I want to also not be uneducated and causing more harm than good. Uh, how do we start? How do we use the right language to talk about um, this people group? Of this? Yeah. And even even to inform churches, like not to put any blame or, you know, anything on the missions program that you guys went on or the church that you're part of. But informing the churches and their orphan care ministries of how to talk about the issue and how to educate people. And yeah, how do you, how do you see that being done? Well, how do you engage in that? Um, Well, the first thing that comes to mind is people first language. And so it's a concept that has come a lot around people who um, have vulnerable disabilities and, Um, It kind of is just the very basics of, you could say, um, that is an autistic child or a child who has autism. Um, And it's basically the way of seeing someone is that I see you for a person first, and then I see um, this second. And so something that I kind of stand by, and it's kind of wordy, but it's just children experiencing vulnerabilities. Um, It embodies a lot. And it's not putting a label on something that we don't necessarily know a child's situation. Mm. Um, And then for the church, I think that's the same of like what Jonathan kind of mentioned is that we, as our ministry, want to have an accurate name of what we do. um, But we also want to have an accurate picture of where the help is needed um, and where um, the kind of support that children and families need. Do you want to expand upon that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so what we actually ended up doing, I'll start there is, um, 
we, we, we struggled for a while of, well, what should we actually call this? And we were trying to, we came up with so many ridiculous names yeah. um, <laughs> and didn't know how to encompass it. And then we had an epiphany that wasn't really an epiphany of why don't we just call it what it is? Um, and so we called it the foster care and safe families ministry because we're, those were the things that we were doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not a huge thing. Like to most people in the church, it doesn't make a difference. Um, but to us, it was a start of wanting to build mindfulness. Um, and I think that can get attributed to being, Oh, that's just so PC. Like, you know, but I think over time that building that mindfulness and the way that you see people, um, really plays out. Um, and if I can add on to that, I guess one of the things that the personal kind of experience we've had with that is as part of the safe families program, which is a, it's kind of on the preventative side mm-hmm. of, uh, child welfare. Um, we had an experience with the family that we were hosting their uh, son for a short period of time. And we kind of went into that with a lot of misperceptions about who they would be and what and they just, needed. Just to clarify, safe families, what is safe families? I yeah, I, I was going to back up, but uh, then I was telling a story. So uh, I kind of <laughs> just went with it. Um, so safe families is... Safe families for children. Yeah, safe families for children. Um, so it's a program where families, um, typically in the church, will host children of other families where they that family is either um, in crisis, has no support system, is socially isolated, um, some of those experiences. And so they don't have someone to fall back on when say a single mom is giving birth or needs to go to the hospital, things like that. Like who's going to watch their child while they're in the hospital. Exactly. And so the role is, and the goal is, is for the church to step into those gaps um, and be a support system for families that are socially isolated. Yeah, exactly. So it's a really cool thing on the preventative side of the spectrum. And so we were doing a hosting and this is where I'm going with mindfulness is we had all these perceptions about what the family would be. Um, and when we actually met them, those were kind of shattered. Um, I think in it's such a good way in such a good way. Yes. Um, I think it's easy to almost unassumingly look down on someone because they need help, um, or make judgments about what their parenting must be or th- how much they love their children. And when we actually met them, they loved their kids so much. They were so sad that they were going to be away. And it was simply because a mom was giving birth. Um, and so sitting on a couch with them, being in proximity to them was really transformative for the our understanding of the way we saw someone. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan, you said safe families was on the pre- preventative side of the scale. Can you explain that and kind of what that means? Yeah. So uh, the best way we've heard it is uh, through an analogy that we heard from someone named Jason Johnson. And the way he explained it was if you look at child welfare as a river, um, in this analogy, there are three friends and they come across this river and they see kids are floating down the river. And they're like, oh my gosh, we have to do something. And so one of them says, we need to stop kids from going off the waterfall at the end of this river. And so he runs down to the bottom and starts trying to catch as many kids as he can before they keep going. And the second friend says, well, there's kids in front of me. I need to do something. And he just wades into the river and starts trying to pull out as many kids as he can. And then the third friend says, wait, where are these kids coming from and why are they in the river? Um, and so that kind of explains that there are immediate needs, um, in child welfare. Like there are kids who, um, need to be adopted. That is a real need. There are kids, there's foster care. There's, there's a huge spectrum. Um, but say families is on the, Hey, how do we prevent this before kids end up in the system, end up in the river mm. in this analogy, um, by building 
support around the family, by building um, systems for them to fall back on, things like that. So like before they would be put in foster care. Exactly. So the kind of the goal is that a family would have enough support to where they don't lose their parental rights um, just because they have a crisis that pushes them a little mm-hmm. beyond um, what like they're... Like chronic stress would yeah. be a huge um, indicator or factor that could factor into a, um, a child being placed into the foster mm-hmm. care system. And so their goal is to um, kind of stop that chronic stress and that chronic crisis and um, intervene and step in and put a support system around prior to it kind of escalating to the point that um, there would need to be more in- intervention. So to take that back into what the church um, can do around language, um, one of the things that we've seen is that for experts in the field, there's a huge spectrum of language that they use to describe things. So for example, they use terms like double orphan, single orphan. There's uh, like categories there's of orphans. Tons, judicial orphan, social orphan. And they use those to kind of understand um, the issue at a more granular level. But to the church, there's orphans. Um, and so experts might put out something like there's 150 million orphans in the world. Don't quote me on that. Um, that's just a made-up number. Um, but to them, that might be, okay, a lot of those are single orphans. So they still have one parent. So um, single orphan means one parent. I should define that. Right. Both, both parents, parents are missing. Are, okay. Right. So a single orphan, we wouldn't in the U.S. call them an orphan. Um, we don't really apply that term to ourselves for some reason. That's a, like another topic. Like we don't topic. apply it to children in the foster care system. Right. Of mm. or, they're or, not, sorry. we wouldn't call them judicial orphans, which is what would maybe be called some the same kind of scenario in a developing country. Right. Or a single parent household. We don't in the U.S. say those are single orphans. Um, so we have selective terms that we use internationally, which is kind of another topic. Um, and so they might use those statistics, but that communicates something different um, to kind of the average person in the church where we just know, oh my gosh, there's so many orphans. I have to do something about this. And that I have to do something about this without the um, kind of the education around the issue that a lot of those experts have um, can kind of lead to misinformed action. And so that's kind of where that progression of informed language leads to informed perception, leads to informed action comes from. Mm. That's good. And how, um, going circling back to how the church specifically uh, talks about this, um, how do you, I mean, do you think just having the right people like yourself sort of, um, at the helm of those, uh, that part of the church, uh, ministry is that, do you think having the right people in place is the right step or, um, yeah, what do you think? I think that's thinking really highly of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Too> much <laughs> we're credit. learning, um, and we're learning like self-taught in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that it is, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. There's like the Christian Alliance for Orphans and they put out research and um, are there to support churches in best practices around all the different spectrums of child welfare, whether it be international adoption, foster care, um, preventative. And so I think that things like that, there are tools out there um, for anybody who is interested in learning more. Um, And then I think also bringing in organizations. That's something that we do at our church is we recognize that we're not the experts in this at all. And so we bring people um, into our church to talk about this with people in our congregation. 
um, so they can share their expert knowledge with them um, because we recognize that that's not our that's not our place. We don't know that we're not the experts, so we want to make sure that we can give the best information and equip people in the church to know and act how they need to act. Mm. And and by act, I mean like how they want to engage in in this if they are interested in being foster families or so on. In all your research, uh, you I remember reading your paper and, and um, you kind of dug deeper into the possible negative effects that um, short mission style trips can have uh, on children when you're, you know, when they're being visited, at, when they are at an orphanage or, or something like that. Um, what's your, I mean, I know you were just saying, hey, we're not experts, we're still growing on the path. Yeah. <laughs> and I really respect that kind of learning attitude, but you guys do have more experience than us. And, and um, uh, maybe a lot of people who haven't really considered it before. Uh, so what's your thought on, you know, how do we, uh, how do we engage and have some hands-on interaction? Uh, you know, like, let's say this is something we care about without uh, maybe going and perpetuating the same mistakes, uh, you know, causing attachment issues and, and things like that. What do you, what do you think is the best course of action or maybe some possible course of action? Yeah. Um, I think it's, it starts with where your heart is and as to why you want to do it. Um, if it's for, if it's for you or if it's for the purpose of truly loving and showing the love of Jesus. And I don't mean that manipulatively or like guilt tripping, but I think that, um, sometimes we have to relinquish our desire of how we want to interact with something. Meaning, um, maybe you really do want to go to an orphanage in a developing country and spend time with children, but knowing that that's not best for them, like, are we willing to step aside and interact in that in a different way? Are we willing to support organizations that are already doing good work on the ground um, and recognizing that that's for the greater good and that's for the mission of Jesus of reflecting his heart better? That's well said. Yeah, that's good. Something that I've seen in your guys' relationship, which I think is really be beautiful, is that you both care about the same issue but engage in it in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, for example, Katrina, you've been more focused on foster care and adoption. Um, and Jonathan, you've been uh, focused on human trafficking uh, and preventing that. Um, so we kind of heard about your journey towards that. Um, and not to say that you guys aren't both interested in each of those things, but like the analogy you said before, sometimes mm -hmm. somebody's at the waterfall, somebody's mm -hmm. uh, you know, at the source. Um, so we haven't really talked about human trafficking, but I know that's also part of your guys' you know, story. It's something that right. you care about. So maybe tell me about that and what that's how you got there. Yeah. Um, so a lot you're right, a lot of these things are interconnected. Mm -hmm. The stat is somewhere around, I think it was seventy ish percent of kids or those who have been trafficked have been touched by the foster care system. Yeah, I think um, it's big around there. It was around there. Um, so the way that that started was actually unrelated to this. Um, so for my for my day job, I'm a software engineer. And for a long time, I felt a disconnect between the things I care about and the, what, the things that I'm good at. Um, and I couldn't figure out how to kind of correlate those. And so friend kind of kick-started that in the right direction said hey here's some people you should talk to at your work that I know um, and they're doing some stuff in this space and so I went and talked to them and it turned out there were some people at my work um, software engineers and um, kind of the likes of that doing anti-trafficking work and saying hey how do we how do we take technology and increase the uh, 
um, effectiveness and scale of what nonprofits are already doing. So not how do we just, oh, we're in tech and so we know better and can go build something, but how do we go empower other organizations to do what they're doing even better? Because they're the experts in that field. And so that kind of led into the anti-trafficking work. Um, and so these things are correlated. So we've kind of come to see that there's, you can't just look at one issue in isolation. Um, they're so, they're so intertwined. You could, there's so many causes to kids ending up in the foster care system. There's so many causes. If you look internationally of why kids are separated from their families. And so you kind of have to take a step back from just the issue that maybe got you into the field or got your interest or that maybe the one you care about and say, you know, what does the whole picture look like? That's really good. It's fascinating how when you start digging into something, um, how the, like, it seems sometimes obvious, the solution might seem obvious, like, oh, we just need to do this, you know, uh, you know, maybe uh, like in continuing with your initial, you know, it's like, well, we just need to send more people to go love on these kids or, or whatever. And so like, it seems like, oh, like I know what the answer is. And then it seems like you start digging in and you start learning more and then, you know, it's like, wow, well, there's an economics issue going on and there's, you know, maybe there's a, a governmental issue that's causing this mm -hmm. poor economic situation or maybe some kind of, uh, maybe there's some kind of other aid relief that's uh, causing harm to the economy because it's, you know, uh, causing people to rely on funding that's external opposed to creating value, um, you know, through business or whatever. I mean, right. I, I'm just kind of spitballing different ideas, but um, yeah, it's super I don't know. It seems like the more you learn, the less you know, because you realize the right. problems yes. are always bigger <laughs> and more complex than you initially thought. Mm -hmm. And the, your your first kind of gut reaction of like, I know how I'm going to fix this almost always proves, at least for me, to just be like a dismal <laughs> failure and uh, horribly, you know, good heart, but bad, bad action. So, right. um, yeah, I think it's really cool to see how you guys have gone from like we care uh, to but not letting your passion or the amount you care prevent you from being able to learn mm -hmm. and you know be able to say like we care but we don't know you know right. or but we right. want to learn more and so I think that's really really neat I think part of that process um, that that got me thinking about is sometimes we can hold so tightly to the things that are already established and not question like should this still exist or should this still be the way that we do something because um, a lot of these things it's like if if we put ourselves out of business, that would be good because that would mean it's gone. And so how do how does that become yeah. our goal of we're not just trying to sustain our thing because it's our thing, but how do we, you know, I think continually adapt and say, you know, is this still the, the tactic that we should be pursuing? Not just because in the church, I think that, you know, as long as I can remember in growing up, orphanages were the thing. And so we were so used to that being just something you do as part of your faith um, that there was really no questioning of it. And so I think that we have to have an open mindset to, you know, just because we're established in this and we have so many funds or resources devoted to it, is that still the, the right thing? Um, so that's kind of what that gets me thinking of is we have to have the humility to say, sure, this has been good for us, but is it still good? And we don't want it to be good for us. We want it to be for the people mm -hmm. that we, that we want it to be serving. That's good. I, I, I feel like that's really scary too, because you start to realize that you're going to fail a lot and that there's going to yeah. be a lot of um, learning and then you're going to have to figure out, you know, what are the best practices and how do you be informed, but be willing to, um, 
you know, just put your good heart forward and try and figure it out in the process. Right. But I think that's really intimidating to a lot of people. It's like, I don't know enough about this. How do I even engage? Because I don't want to engage poorly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, I mean, you talked about bringing in people who are experts and just sort of connecting with those people and willing to learn, but um, sort of rely on their knowledge. But how do, I mean, you guys came to slowly, you know, care about this and have learned a lot over time, but I don't know, just how do you encourage people to be willing to take that step and be willing to engage even though they're not an expert? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to the being willing to take a step before you feel ready because there's been so many times we haven't felt ready. Um, we felt the opposite of ready. Um, or didn't know what we were doing. Or even that. Or, yeah, we're unclear on the direction or really didn't want to go in the, that direction. Um, and those little steps, um, that's been what's taken us further ahead of we know this is unknown. And I think now looking back on that, we were just talking about this the other day, we – we we like our plans. The two of us are just <laughs> wired that way. We like to, you know, know where things are going to go. Spontaneity is something we have to think about. So maybe it's not spontaneity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we plan spontaneity. <laughs> um, and so, but we were looking back and we're just in the season where we feel so much openness to not knowing what's next. And that that was not us not very long ago. And so seeing the culmination of that all just started out of we trust in taking one small step and I feel like that's led to kind of the door being wedged more and more open. We cracked it and then Mm -hmm. it's been getting bigger and bigger. And so that's where it started for us. Right. And I think that we both recognize, I don't even know if I should call them mistakes in our stories, but Hmm. experiences that we had, you know, like I talked about the orphanage and attachment and that's a really common story for a lot of people that they've experienced. Um, And I think it's kind of one of those things of what you choose to do with that story at that point. Like I personally have chosen that that is part of my story and I have to own it because that was the start of kind of this passion that I I have found. Um, And so I think that is when you can recognize that um, you, the mistakes are okay and that you can take that step um, before you're ready. And it is okay if you make those mistakes. Mm, That's good. That's good. I think one of the things that I was thinking for the church is that typically the church uh, functions around personal transformation. Like that's like God works in you and there's this kind of I'm a new creation kind of experience. And it's easy, we've talked about, to take that into um, kind of this type of work or engagement where um, it's easy to just be focused on the individual transformation of, you know, a family or a person and forget also about systemic factors that affect people. Um, and so one of the quotes that we have up in our living room talks about how love doesn't just um, unbind the wounds that have been caused, but it also looks at the injustice at a structural level. Um, mm-hmm. That's that that is truly loving our neighbor as well. And so um, that's just something we we try to keep in mind and not forget that yes, we care for the individual and the family and want to see them, but we also want to see the external forces that are shaping their circumstances that put them in this position in the first place that's good something that's uh i think really great about hearing your guys' story is that um no matter what you're passionate about the journey um like the the 
the basis, the structure can kind of be the same. And I feel like you guys have done a good job of like starting not knowing, but caring and figuring out how to care in a way that is more effective. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, like everybody is going to have a different, uh, you know, maybe a different thing that they care about. Um, and, but I, I think hearing your guys' story, at least for me, is really encouraging because, um, you know, I realize where, where I started and, and, uh, and I hope to, that someday I can continue to walk down that journey and, and, and do it in a way that's, I care, but I'm also humble and caring. I'm not prideful thinking I know how to do this or, or, right. you know, or, or uh, look, you know, I don't know. I think sometimes people use guilt to try to get people to take action yeah. specifically when it's around, um, helping pe- people that are in other, uh, less developed countries. So, um, anyway, so I think there's just a, a required humility that you guys both have. And, and I really appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. I remember when, um, Jake and I came to you and we're like, Hey, we're kind of curious about, um, about orphanages and mm. you just like so kindly just like slid a book to us. It's like, oh, <laughs> you, should, you should read this. And then we come back and we're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, like, that's right. I forgot about that. Like, you were so, <laughs> what, you were what so were we gracious saying? in oh. such a safe place for us to learn. And like, yeah. you know, cause we, we totally did. We were know. like, yeah, well, yeah. You guys are so kind. I came to you like, this is after you guys had like already kind of gone through it all. And Katie and I were like, we want to start an orphanage. And you, instead of like, just if I were in your shoes, I would have dropped the bomb on me and been like, uh-uh, <laughs> wag the finger. Like, let you me don't tell know. you what I know. Yeah, exactly. But instead you guys are so like gracious. And instead of forcing us to believe something or whatever, you just really like uh, showed us the path you walked on. Um, and I thought, I think that's really sweet that, you know, and we got to learn and go down. And now we're like, my, my goodness, thank, thankfully we didn't decide to, do something that would cause more harm than good because uh, for in that specific example, I mean, they're shutting down orphanages mm-hmm. largely, right? Because they're become more damaging than, than good. Yeah. Um, like I mentioned, I'm not an expert um, and I don't have facts about this, but there are um, a lot of different countries and regions that are starting to sign declarations that they are um, going to be part of transitioning out of orphanages towards family-based care. So kind of going back to those caregivers and um, if children don't have any other option, then at least being in smaller homes where they can have a primary caregiver. Hmm. So that would be kind of moving to like a foster care sort of system like we have in the in the U.S. Right. So either towards a foster care system or more towards a like smaller group home type mm. thing. So you have maybe one or two parents in the home and maybe a few children in the home. So you're creating a family like setting Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something called like the spectrum of care and it kind of goes along the different lines of if this doesn't work, then this is the next best. If this doesn't work, this is the next best. Um, and so that's what a lot of areas are starting to do in developing countries is to kind of follow along that spectrum. Right. And each of those, I mean, the foster care system has its flaws too. So mm-hmm. no, I mean, nothing's perfect, but the idea is to move toward what's best for the child, um, in any of those in whatever their circumstances are. Right. And I think the other thing is that we have both learned is, you know, we said like in a span of 10 years, it's like this has been a part of our conversation. Um, there is always new research and new knowledge around um, fields like this, like in fields of child welfare and foster care and anti-sex trafficking um, of best ways to engage in it. And so we recognize that right now there are best practices, but we also hold that 
I don't know, loosely in a way, to understanding that there, there needs to be room to adapt and room for new research. And so the learning process is never going to end. And so because of that, we want to hold safe spaces for other people to learn because we recognize our journey's not done. Right. That's probably been one of the most helpful things for us is having other people where we can all admit that we don't have it figured out and we can walk through it together and have the kindness to let other people say the wrong thing and say, actually, maybe that's not what I meant and mm-hmm. figure it out together. And those have been some of the most fruitful and developing things for us. Mm-hmm. What's amazing what you're, about what you're describing is if you think about the people in your life that have impacted you the most, maybe parents or teachers or mentors, it's the people that it's not people that have all the answers, but it's the people that are the most gracious and the most loving and the ones that let you learn and uh, care for you. And I feel like that's what you just described is like, I, I have the knowledge, but I care about you more than I care about the knowledge. And right. I want to yes. see that knowledge um, put to good use, you know, and anyways, just, it's just like you said, putting the person first. Um, it's so easy to make, make the mission more important than the people mm. that are being affected by yeah. the mission. Right. Yeah, I think having that safe space makes a huge difference. Like, so when you were telling your story, full transparency, when you guys were talking about that, we were like, oh my gosh, what, like, do we have to say something? Like, we what do we night. do? And we were talking about it. We're like, what do we do? Do we say something? Like, how do we handle this? Right. And I think where we came, you chime in if I, you know, say this wrong, but I think where we came to is like, we know Jake and Katie. We kind of know where that, we don't feel, and because of that, we didn't feel a rush to be like, oh my gosh, we have to correct this. We thought, you know, we're already friends with them. We're going to hang out with them anyways, and we can have conversations around this and learn together. And that was fruitful. Yeah. Right. And we feel like curiosity is such a powerful thing that when there's curiosity present, like we know that the learning hasn't stopped and the, and that is something that we have a lot of peace in and all of our relationships really is that we recognize that we do not have all the answers and nor do our friends or families have all the answers. But when there's curiosity there, like you can engage in a different way and have those open conversations um, without having to arrive to something. Mm, Yeah. Mm. That's good. Yeah. Well guys, that was really fun. Um, I love hearing about your story because, um, it encourages me on my story and I hope for everybody that listens to this too, they're going to hear, uh, you know, they're going to hear about somebody who doesn't know the exact way they wanted to go, but they knew where they hope to end up. So I think you guys show that really well. And, um, yeah, it was just fun talking with you about it. We had fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Mm-hmm.